You're listening to Work by 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 Work on air. This conversation was recorded live at the White Hotel in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, as part of Work by Work on Air, a four-day pop-up radio lounge designed to explore creativity and storytelling through the lens of artists, musicians, writers, podcasters, activists, and innovators in the ever-relevant medium of freeform radio. In this feature, Joe Richmond, producer and host of the Radio Diaries podcast, joins Scott Newman, founder and creative director of Work by Work, to talk about the art and craft of audio storytelling, featuring examples of Radio Diaries award-winning documentaries, including the most recent series, Working, based on newly discovered tapes recorded in the 70s by author Studs Terkel. We're here with Joe Richmond. Joe is the producer and host of Radio Diaries podcast, and really uh, somebody who is who's really been moving the radio and audio industry forward. And we were just talking about that, the idea of being in front of the mic versus behind the mic. And I actually just wanted to start. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back off in a minute, and we're going to let you uh, tell us about your work. And I know you're going to do some things with the working series and, and take us into your process. But I wanted to start because you really started as more of a reporter-producer, but in the podcast era, you've come to the other side. And uh, I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, I, I, it's been sort of a wave back and forth. I mean, I started out in radio as more of a news reporter for public radio. And um, as I started to do more sort of feature and documentary stories, I, I found myself kind of taking myself out of the story more and more and trying to hand the story over to the tape and the characters as much as possible. And that, um, that led to the work that we do now, Radio Diaries, where... Um, the stories are essentially narrated by the diarists, the people we give tape recorders to, or in others, in our sort of history documentaries, they're narrated by archival tape and the characters that we interview. So I'm sort of invisible in those stories. Um, but as we've gone from NPR and from the radio broadcast to, uh, to the podcast world over the last you know five years, I've become more, uh, you know, I'm the host of the podcast, so sort of going for a full circle to become more invisible, and then I guess suppose a little more visible. <laughs> That's one of the things I like about the podcast movement right now, is that it's taking people from behind the mic and bringing them in front. It, are you inspired by that as well? Like the idea of the makers, you know, are really having a moment to have a voice. Yeah, well, I'm inspired by, I mean, a lot of things. One, there's just sort of room for everyone and everything. And also, um, yeah, I mean... Uh, Podcast, especially Radiotopia, the network that we're part of, really celebrates you know the individual maker, the entrepreneur, the entrepreneurial part of it, the craft, the um, the kind of obsessive, you know, uh, you know, devotion to to the storytelling, and that's you know that's what that's what all the shows in Radiotopia I think have as part of their DNA is this like real obsession with whatever they're doing. You know, do you have an obsession with what you're doing? <laughs> I have a total obsession. Are you like, do you, are, you the, are you a guy who like wakes up in the middle of the night with like visions and ideas or what, what <laughs> how does your obsession manifest in your life? Well, I mean, I, I think when you're an independent producer, you, you, you are on this roller coaster of, you know, busy, crazy times and not, you know, and that's sort of the way it works. We have a few stories going on all the time, and when we're in full production mode, we will, um, 
yeah, we'll, we'll just sort of nonstop. You know, it's sort of part of that process is once you're really producing and editing, it kind of takes over. You know, I think it's, that's true with everything. Can you give a background? Where did Radio Diaries begin and, and where is it now and where are you taking it? Yeah, and I brought some clips that sort of uh, over the history so, so we can kind of walk through that a little bit. But as I said, I was doing more traditional reporting and producing for public radio and I started... In, the, in 1996, giving tape recorders to a group of teenagers around the country. That became the series called Teenage Diaries. Yes. And it was, you know, it was a learning experience in many ways, um, trying to figure out what makes these, you know, once you give a tape recorder to per- someone and you, you know, what makes good tape, what makes a real story that can be told just completely in their words. And, um, and then in recent years, we went back to a lot of those original teenagers as adults now and, and, and sort of revisited those stories and over time, and I think that you know, for me, that's one of the great things about this way of working, specifically the diaries, is telling stories over time. So it's not just taking a, a moment, but it's it's seeing people. Um, you get to experience their lives, something happening in their lives, and that's really, I think, what great radio does is it lets you experience something for yourself. It's really good, and also in audio, I wanted to ask you too about the power of audio because one of the things I found too, even with this this four-day thing we're doing. So many people who have come and gone have, and I've known this, but hearing it from other people, it's so freeing to not be on camera, right? To just be able to talk and be real. There's something real about audio that allows people to relax and really be themselves. And obviously you're producing it, you're finding those moments of magic, but do you feel like there's a certain level of authenticity, maybe even more so? In audio? I think it's two things. I mean, one, certainly um, the recording process, I think you can be more, you know, less self-conscious, more intimate. You know, people always talk about the intimacy of radio, and that's very, very real. Um, You know, the the fact that you feel like you really can get to know someone through a radio story in a way that you can't in any other medium. So, you know, with the diaries, we trade on that a lot because it's so much easier to turn the microphone on yourself than it is a camera. And you can be more natural. You can be more yourself. So that's that's the recording process. But there's also just something I would think about um, as a listener, too. I mean, I I I believe that there's a certain kind of um, empathy you get with audio, and a real. I hope I can say bullshit on this on whatever radio we are streaming on right now. But there's a bullshit detector that I think is very real that you get in your ears that I think is can be misleading yeah. with your eyes and and I, I think you can just sort of really understand people when you hear them in a way that you can't in other mediums and and that's again one thing that we really is part of the the superpower that we use for these diaries mm-hmm. I think you know that, that part of that, that aspect of the magic of radio what kind of stuff do you have in mind to uh, play for yeah, to us play. today <laughs> well I've got I thought we could kind of we could I have a few different things and we could wing it depending on, you know, what you or anyone else is interested in. But I, I brought a little clip of our very first diary going way, way back. Oh, I love this. And I thought we'd sort of talk a little bit about the project that you and I talked about playing today is about working because the theme today, and it's all about these um, archival recordings. So we'll get to that in a moment. But I was just going back to our own Radio Diaries archive of going back to these stories from years ago. And I thought I would just go to the very first diary that we did which was, you know, such an eye-opening learning experience for me, and I can talk a little bit about why that was. But um, I guess let me just start, I'll just play this a really, really short clip just to introduce this character. This is uh, Amanda from Queens, just give you a little sense of her. Who has that cigarette? Me. Give it to me. Is it bad? 
Hell yes. Oh, God. My name is Amanda, and uh, I'm 17 years old. I live in Queens. Basically, I, I wear, like, a cross between skater clothes and, like, industrial gothic style. I think it's a neat combination. My parents think I should dress more feminine, but what do they know, right? They grew up back in ancient times. So that's Amanda Brand. Um, uh, she gave her tape recorder in 90, like, you know, in the uh, Pleistocene era, 95, 96 or so, and she recorded hanging out with her friends, and then the moment that she recorded that was really um, such a lesson was uh, is an interview with her parents. So she's, Amanda was coming out, as, as back then she called, she said she was bisexual, now she would say she was, she was gay. Back mm. then she said bisexual, and her parents were having a really hard time with it. Catholic conservative family. And that was what her story was about. And this is sort of the central, the real beating heart of the story is when she interviewed her parents. So this is a couple minutes of that scene. My parents, my parents know that I'm, that I'm bisexual, but they don't talk about it much. You know, my father, my father doesn't really talk much at all. My mother, on the other hand, when, we, when I first told her, And uh, she reacted totally crazy. It was all against my growing up beliefs. Anyone who was gay or was lesbian was considered sick. Sick. Wasn't accepted in the Catholic Church at all. It just it wasn't accepted. So I've grown up with that concept all my life. So they hear that you're that. You? Wouldn't that blow your mind? How do you feel about it, Dad? About what? How do you feel about me? Fine. What about it? Sexuality-wise. Well, you're you're 17 years old. You're you're not definite. You're not formed in your ways. Someone at 17 does not know what is at the other end of the line. Anybody? How do you know? There's just not enough life that you've seen. You haven't seen enough. You haven't done enough. You have not lived. Well, over two years and then uh, five months have gone by, and I that's think what if I a believe. good fella came by and really treated you right, your mind will switch. My mind will switch. So it, it's all in my mind. It is. It's all in your mind right now. You just don't say, well, this is how I feel, and this is how I'm going to be for the rest of my life. I'm not saying that's how I'm going to be for the rest of my life, and I'm not saying that I'm not going to have sex with a guy. I'm saying that I do. I want to go and have sex with a guy. It's not happened yet. I hope not. No, it's not, but, I I mean, I'm going to. I'm not going to, like, deny myself of that. Well, that's what I said. Don't deny yourself of that. (laughs) And you may find, when you do that, that your whole outlook may change. It's just not like, oh, this is somebody's decision. This They don't really know what they want right now. There's guy. I mean, I've been out with guys while I've been going out with Dawn. Dawn's been out with guys while she's been going out with me. I mean, we, we're so, like, we're really close. And there's, like, a love there. More for me towards her than her towards me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But we're with each other, you know? Well, maybe that's just a good friendship. You love friends. Yeah, but I don't do what I do with Dawn with friends. 
you know what I mean? You don't do what you do with dad with friends. Wow. Yeah, I mean, so the, so she recorded that, you know, she's recording all sorts of things as she's going along with her tape recorder. We trained her with a tape recorder and she's, you know, recording her life for a period of months. And then this conversation, which was just, you know, obviously you're just such an incredible fly on the wall experience to, in a way that as a reporter, of course, I would never get this scene. And somehow it just happened, you know, that, that, that there's real electricity there because she is talking about the stuff for the first time with them. And a conversation, truthfully, that they would have never had without the microphone as well. Right. You know, so there is, right. of course, it's not, you know, it's not sort of capturing natural life in some, you know, out on the, in, you know, out in the wild. But um, it, it is a manufactured experience, but it, it's because of the microphone and the formality of, of these questions, you do get something that is, you know, feels very magical. Was it, was it like an actual handheld mic? Like the, the, they were aware that the, the oh, yeah, recording yeah, was yeah, happening? Yeah. In fact, that's, you know, on, because public radio is in this journalistic con- context, there's no secret recording anyway. It has to, right. Everyone has to be on board for the recording. And that's one of the brave things about her mom, too. Her mom knew she was doing this story mm-hmm. about being gay, and her mom was having a really hard time with it, but she was okay with this process, the deal was as long as Amanda's grandmother never heard the story, it was okay. <laughs> wow. Grandma would turn in her Grandma grave turn, or yeah. something like that. So, and the interesting thing about this, so this was in the mid-90s, so we went back to five of the diarists, those original teenage diarists a few years ago, including Amanda, and also um, Melissa, who was a teen mom, and Juan, who was an undocumented immigrant, and uh, a few others, and Amanda. And, you know, everything has changed in their family. Her mom now counsels other families whose, parent, whose kids are coming out. And it's kind of, a, you know, over the 15, 16 years, her family has changed as the world has changed. And that, is sort of, that particular story is just an interesting, um, you know, uh, just way to look at that particular issue, how much has changed. How, what's the most recent conversation we know about the mom now? So, so she went back and recorded her parents again in that same room mm-hmm. 16 years later um, to talk about how much they've, their attitudes have changed and all. I, one, at the end, there's this kind of funny moment because as much as change of, in terms of their attitudes about having a daughter who is gay, the real change is like the dad was really vocal. <laughs> he, was, he talked a lot. Wow. <laughs> and um, yeah, it was just, uh, you know, I think... Um, I think probably any kid going through that, the biggest thing is, you know, do, do you, are you, you still feel loved? And I think, uh, you know, Amanda went through difficult times, but, you know, her parents still loved her as, as hard as it was for them to figure out what this meant to have a, a daughter who was gay. That's such a great one. And that was one of the first ones or the first that one? That was the first one. Yeah. And then, yeah, and since then we've done diaries uh, in a retirement home and in prisons and with, you know, uh, teenagers and and you know, folks all over. Um, so, yeah, and I, I, I have another diary I could play, but I think maybe skip that and go to this working series. Sure. That's what I'm feeling. What do yeah, you think? Yeah, I'm yeah, feeling right. that. Okay, because going back to these stories years later, it was, you know, I mean, I love this idea of archival tape. I'm a total archival tape geek, and I love going, and, and the fact that we were able to go through our own archive and hear these, visit, revisit these same Characters and go back to some of their old tape as teenagers and hear them talk about their lives now was just one of the most thrilling kind of story experiences I've had. So that was a few years ago. And then more recently, a project we also do, along with diaries, we do a lot of historical documentaries. 
And we were given access to this incredible archive for me because I, I grew up on this book, uh, Studs Terkel's book, Working. I don't know how many people here know about that book, but uh, Studs Terkel is oral historian and, and author, and he wrote this book in the 70s called Working, where he went around the country and interviewed people about their jobs and what they do all day. And I read this book in high school and was like, for me, the first time you sort of see everyday people celebrated in that way, the kind of like every, you know, everyday quotidian stuff of their lives. And that book really was, you know, became part of, I think, you know, what I was going to do later in in this work. And so um, he recorded all these interviews on reel-to-reel tape, but they've never, most of them have never been heard. And after he died, all these tapes were were there in boxes. So we got access to them, and we went through all these interviews that are from the 70s, early 70s, about jobs, and we found the best ones and cut them together in these short little portraits and with a number of them, we also went back to these same people 40 years later and re-interviewed them to look back on their own interviews and that sort of thing. So I have a couple examples of that. And for me, that, that was like a really personally fun project to go back and, and bring this book to life in sound, this book that had meant so much to me. So let's see, I have a couple... I'll play a really short example. This is just um, from uh, Hotz Michael, who is a piano player at a bar in Chicago. We're sitting with Hotz Michaels. If you want to noodle at the piano, you can, fine. At the piano bar, people sit around the piano and they're drinking. It's now cocktail hour, about six or so. Hotz, how long have you been playing here? I started here in 1952, Studs. When I started here, we had six piano players per night the strolling violins, and we had a full orchestra. I am the last live entertainment of the Sherman Hotel. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me about you. Well, piano playing is secondary. <laughs> it's kind of background music uh, for talking, people getting together. Out-of-town visitors, businessmen talking over whatever deals of the day they had to talk over lawyers. It's a great gathering spot for lawyers. Uh, give us a drink over here. What generally are the subjects that people on the piano bring up? Talk about personal things with you? Very. <laughs> like what? Well, well like what? Uh, marriage. Domestic problems. Domestic problems. The saloons are kind of full of lonely people. Trying to fill a, an empty hour or two. Void in their life somewhere, you know. Stutz, can you excuse me one yeah, sure. Hello, Jamie. Hi, honey. Nice to see you girls. Oh, we're just kind of having fun here, taping a show. This is Mr. Stutz Kirk of here, girls. Somewhere in that old interview from the 70s, there's a moment where he gets a phone call from a wife looking for her her husband who's at the bar and there's like just little moments like that there's a there's another moment where Henry Hyde former uh, yeah. representative uh, walks to the bar and they they wow. all say hi so it's this really kind of like glimpse into like Chicago at that time you really it's, feel like you're there you know hearing the piano and the clinging yeah, glasses yeah, and yeah, all that yeah, yeah it's very visual you know yeah. we, you were asking about radio we always say that up in radio that uh, the pictures are better in radio yeah that's an example of that I think 
the Studs Terkel archive. That do we know that that was around? So a lot of his recordings. He he did a radio show for many years in Chicago too. So a lot of those recordings um, have been around and are being made um, accessible and public. But specifically, the book tapes and this yeah. book for the book Working uh, hadn't been heard before. A couple of them had, but most of them had never been heard before. Totally. And that was just a, and so we collaborated with this other organization in Chicago to. They're doing a museum exhibit, and we did this radio series to bring these these tapes to life. I was really inspired when I found out about that. I know the book, and you know it's working. My friend Laura says that Working's the book that her father uh, gave gave her to figure out what she wanted to do, like read this mm-hmm. book and see how how you can bring your perspective to whatever it is you do, you know. And and for me, like the book represents how we think about what we do, which I find really interesting. Absolutely. More yeah. than the title of who we are. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think it's also, a re- it's really interesting to look back at the way people thought about their jobs then and now. And you hear, in a lot of those interviews from the 70s, there's a lot of fear about, um, you know, industrialization and sort of uh, robots taking over their jobs and what will, the, you know, it's a lot of it is exact same fears that we hear today in terms of the of you know industries changing and disruption and things take you know certain jobs disappearing so there's a lot of those echoes you realize that have been kind of echoing for a long time and also there's just a, I think a different attitude about you know back then you're you probably had a job and that was going to stay your job mm-hmm. for the rest of your life which is a way that's you know not true as much today and so people thought about those those jobs differently it's interesting, too, to, um, to hear people talk about the work that they do. I've always been very interested in process mm. and what you do and why, how you make it your own. I thought the working book is really interesting because you hear from photographers, musicians, steel workers, this one, that one. When you were looking at the archive, did that strike you, too, the diversity and all the different people oh, that he was interested in? Totally. And, and we tried to do that in the radio series, too, represent you know, a diversity of jobs and of types of people and of attitudes. And certainly in a lot of those interviews, what you see is... Um, people really looking for meaning in their jobs whether it is on an assembly line or as a painter you know whatever whatever the job is people are, are looking for some sort of meaning because they spend so much time doing these jobs you, right. you know you, whatever it is you want to find meaning in, the, in there I have this other one this is a bit of a longer one but I think it might be worth playing because you know some of the interviews felt like 40 years ago and how much things have changed uh, this is one that is um, it's pretty intense and it really shows how much things haven't changed. And it's with Renault Robinson, who was a black police officer in Chicago back then. And he was really outspoken, as you'll hear, about race and the police force. And he took a lot, of, a lot of heat for that. And this is an interview. This is his old interview from the 70s. And, along, and we wove it together with his uh, interview today, looking back on that interview. So this is about five minutes long. You can sit tight for this one. I'm talking with Renault Robinson. And I'm thinking, Renault, why did you become a policeman? Well, policeman is looked upon in the black community as, as an important thing. Even though people are afraid of them or people have bad thoughts about them, the position itself is still one of importance. I quit a job paying more money to become a police officer. And... Uh, 
sometimes I wonder if that was the best decision to make. Could you describe your day, the day of a policeman in uniform? Well, first of all, you're given an assignment and a partner. Most of the white guys are wondering what black they're going to get today. And the black guys are wondering the same thing. Which one of these fools am I going to get today? <laughs> a black cop is saying the only reason I'm with this white cop is because they want to protect his life while he's riding around the black community to, to ward off the bullets. And so, you know, there's hard feelings on both sides. Well, what happens then during these eight hours? You're sitting with this white guy. Say nothing to each other at all. Can you imagine that for eight hours? So there's no conversation? Very little or none. Very little or none. <laughs> Got told Studs exactly what the situation was. My name is Renault Robinson, and when I first started on the police department, I went in there to do the best job I could as a policeman. But that became very difficult once I realized what the true circumstances were. What led to your disenchantment? I think it was just seeing blacks being treated one way and whites being treated another. You know, the majority of the policemen in my station were white. The opinions that they have of black people are, are that they're all criminals, they have no morals, no scruples, they're dirty and nasty, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the trouble is with an ordinary citizen. Could you dwell on this? Well, I would say about 60% of police-citizen contact start on a traffic situation. Certain units have really developed a science around stopping the automobile. In other words, in their minds, <laughs> if they stop 100 cars in the black community, the likelihood of them finding one or two or three violations of some sort is highly possible. Now, of course, after you've stopped 1,000, you've got 900 people who are very pissed off. Teachers, lawyers, doctors. Well, just average working people who haven't broken any law and are very irritated and aggravated about being stopped by the police. And black folks or minority tolerance of that police brutality has grown very short. Because they won't accept it. They won't accept that treatment. They won't accept that dehumanizing, degrading treatment. That's why more young kids are being killed by the police than ever before. 50 years later, whether it's Chicago or Baltimore or Detroit, the same thing is happening in all of these cities. It just feels like deja vu. At the time I joined the Chicago Police Department, I was young, and I guess I was very energetic about doing something about racism. You know, I remember they forced us to put sawed-off shotguns, police-issued, in the squad cars, loaded with double-O buckshot. If you're a hunter, you know what that is. I and, you know, a handful of other black police officers just felt that that was wrong. You're chasing a kid or chasing a stolen car, and you got something that could tear somebody's head off. So the Afro-American Patrolman's League we raised hell, we picketed, we marched, we did everything to get the police department to take those guns out of the squad cars. Of course, speaking out on a regular basis made me a popular fellow in the police department. You go into your locker room and you see in your mailbox is human feces and cigarette ashes and trash. 
you kind of know what that means. You go in the bathroom and there's a picture of you on the wall dressed as a native with a bone in your nose. You know how they feel. They were all knicky-knack stuff just to try and force me out of the department. I know the fact that you now have the reputation of speaking out, speaking your mind. Every now and then you're suspended. I've got a 30-day suspension pending now. What do they use as grounds? Well, this latest one, I'm being suspended because I was passing out literature in the police station to black police about the patrolman's league. I was arrested in the station and I'm being suspended for conduct on becoming a policeman. In the end, I knew I had to go. I mean, I had fractured too many, <laughs> too many feelings and uh, too many people who didn't want to hear what I had to say. And I left. I get a small pension now. And the beat goes on. Weird. Wow. Yeah, so I, I, I like hearing that, what, that whole one in context, just to hear, um, you know, the, the bouncing back and forth between the old interview and, and 40 years later, and what feels different and what feels exactly the same. Yeah. What was it like talking with him? He was, um, he was trying very hard to not be emotional, and he was emotional. Right. And it was really interesting. He was really trying to keep it, keep it together. But, Did he um, remember... The the recording, oh, yeah, like, you know, yeah, very yeah, clearly, he it. yeah. And he, you know, he uh, he, as it says in the story, he left the force um, a few years later. He, he and the another black officer sued the city of Chicago and ended up winning. And he he left and he worked in Harold Washington's administration for a while. And but he actually it took us about a year to get an interview with him. He just really didn't want to do an interview because he had spoken out a lot back in those days and really felt burned by it. And he was not interested at all in talking again. But he finally did. Was he happy with the piece? I think so. Yeah. I, I think one of the reasons he didn't want to talk is it's like you know you get interviewed and what's the point? You know, you, right. you know, your words get chopped down to a little bit and you know what's what. But I think he, I, I think he was happy with it. With and there's a lot of validity out. in that. You know, there is. I mean, it's true. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what we do as journalists. Where we take these long interviews and we cut them down and hopefully people are happy with how their words are presented. You know, we try to make try that. We hope that's true, but um, but we're making stories out of real life, and sometimes that's that is you know the stories that we make aren't always the stories that people want to be made. You know, yeah. there's, a, there's a there's a there's a push pull there. Yeah, and I think I know the answer to this, but obviously, you know, we don't we don't let our subjects right dictate the stories that we tell necessarily, but we want to feel good make them feel good about the story we're telling. Yeah, I mean, the diaries are a little bit of a different case because they are a little bit more of a collaboration. Okay. When we give a tape recorder to someone and, you know, they're not there in the editing room, but they are helping to shape the story by what they record and there's and we there's a lot of communication back and forth about what the story is about. And actually, the, with the diaries, I give them editorial control in a way that I would never do with a, with a regular story. Right. Um, because it's their life and the, it's their story. So, so the, the rules are a little, the sort of editorial rules are a little different with the diaries than they are with our historical and documentaries and, and our other work. And he, how old was he? He must have been 80-ish? Oh, I can't remember. He was he's in his 70s now. Okay. Yeah. Because I always think about that too, more end of life. I mean, he's sure. 
like having my voice be heard or kind of going on record about what I think and the world and we, we, we always think of the, the old wise man and absolutely I mean there's always something you know as a journalist there's something so great about interviewing people when they're young and everything is like ahead and who are, who am I and you know things are like and also with the teenagers with the diaries it's like they have so much time and they really think that whatever they say is important so you know it's really useful to interview people at that stage in life and it's so wonderful to interview people when they're so much older because there's obviously there's a depth in their voice and in their experience and in the looking and there's just kind of a a lovely um feeling about looking back on life from that kind of like resting place yeah and they kind of like don't care as much you know like they're not as they're not performing anymore you know they're not trying to get yeah. a job <laughs> right they're real yeah. you know yeah i'm a producer too you know i went out to nepal after the earthquake and um just a sidebar uh to tell stories of the architecture hmm. through people so we talked to architects, we talked to designers, we talked to engineers, we talked to children, and I learned a lot about how much the architecture in Nepal is tied to the culture of the people. They're not just like dead monuments in Egypt, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, they're actually still a part of people's lives. So when the earthquake destroyed, you know, hundreds of medieval thousand-year-old temples, you know, it, it had a real impact. But yeah. the most profound interviews that we did or with children and with like elderly people, mm-hmm. you know, because it was real, you know. Yeah. yeah. So we did we did a diary project in a retirement home, huh? and one of the lessons was we couldn't do it as a full diary like we do with the teenagers. We had to interview people as well because, and not partly it was the tech. You know, they're just you know a little more um, less comfortable with the equipment to record themselves. But more than that, it was um, teenagers don't mind talking about themselves. And I think as we get older, is this feeling of like, well, what do I have to say? And and it just seems to be drawn out in a way. So they, in most cases, they just weren't good at just being on their own and really going deep with by themselves. Yeah. They needed to be asked. Did you do any? Uh, did your daughters do any radio diaries? Did uh, you ever interview your daughters? <laughs> oh, I interview my daughters yeah. all the time. Okay. Yeah. 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 I love having those. What you know, do you again, interview like archive, them about? I just yeah. love having those. That those archival moments. Do they see you as dad, though? Are they like, dad? <laughs> or are they like... Well, I, I, sometimes they, they interview each other, which is nice. It's nice to get them interviewing each other. And that's true with, like, you know, great scenes, like that earlier clip of Amanda having her interview with her parents. Once you get those conversations happening, then it's a, it's a different experience as a listener. You really feel like you were there, and there's a scene, and there's something happening in front of you, rather than just having someone tell you what's, what's going on. Yeah, I had my kids interview each other. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting. My four and eight. So this was actually last summer. We did more of a longer form thing. It was very interesting. They brought things out of each other that I didn't that I didn't yeah. even see. You know, yeah. certain like little insidery kid kind of insights about you know what we were doing at the beach house that weekend, mm-hmm. and I thought that was really cool. Well, that's also in terms of the diaries. That's one of the lovely things when it happens is they will record something or ask a question of someone or go somewhere that I, as a reporter, would never think to go. You know, so using them as a, like crowdsourcing <laughs> your, um, you know, their own story. Are there any others that you think might be I brought, interesting? I brought one other clip that's maybe a good one to end on. Um, this is, again, from the Working Series. 
And uh, I just love this guy. He's like a private investigator uh, from Brooklyn. You'll hear his lovely, uh, you know, um, central casting Brooklyn accent. But um, this is just a really wonderful case. And um, I just love this. I just love this guy. But coming back to the, uh, the nature of the work you do, or what, for example? Okay, for instance, uh, the butter business. What were you supposed to uncover there? A theft. They had a theft of butter in the bread factory. It sounds ridiculous, but it ran into quite a bit of money. 70-pound cartons of butter were being swiped on an average of once a week, and this was going on for six months to a year, which amounted to something like $4,000, $5,000. So they sent me in there, and I got a job as a mixer. I was a dough mixer. So I had a week to bust this case. And what happened was I found a, uh, a homemade knife stashed away in one of the closets with butter stains on it. We knew the butter was being taken out of the refrigerator. So what I did was I stationed myself on top of the refrigerator, which was a completely darkened room, and I stayed up there for four days, eight-hour shifts. What were your feelings when you were seated on top of the refrigerator for eight hours, you say? Eight hours, right. Did you have a need to go to the toilet? No. Huh. Whatever I had to do, I did before I went up there. And eating and so, so you, What did you do during the eight hours? Smoked, looked out the window. <laughs> Keeping this place on a constant surveillance. I knew who came in, who went out. I knew the times. And Nobody saw you on top of Nobody saw me. And then this one particular Friday night, he comes. A cleanup man. So he comes, opens up, takes the butter, and then he left the area. I went down, I checked it out, it was butter, and called up my supervisor. This was like 2 o'clock in the morning. I says, ah, we got the guy, the case is over. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> like a novel. All right, so does this job affect your outlook outside the job on life? As a matter of fact, I think this job has done more for me as far as understanding people are concerned than before. You're making a discovery about human beings, too. Yeah, basically everybody's the same. This is my discovery. Why does a person steal? You know, if a guy steals a loaf of bread because he's got a kid who's hungry, you call this man a thief? I mean, you know, there's thieves and then there are thieves. You think the job then makes you more tolerant of people's frailties? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Sure. Makes you more tolerant? I think so, don't it, Kat? Yeah. You came a long way. What do you mean? <laughs> What do you mean? In other words, I see, she's implying, if I get you right, that you didn't have this feeling once. Yeah, yeah you used to put people in categories, sort of. No uh, shades of things. Like, they were either black or white, you know, and, and that was it. And I think you've come out of that. Yeah, well, you find out that people aren't that bad, really. Regardless of what you read in the paper, basically, people aren't that bad. They're pretty good. We'll end with this. That sounds great. Your arms get in terms of I think what Studs Turkle was doing in that book and with those interviews and certainly what we try to do at Radio Diaries, it is, you know, taking people from different places and different walks of life and different types of people and really showing the universal connection between everyone. And I think that that story just does in such a level of, you know, people aren't that bad. They're pretty good. And I think that that's kind of you know, that speaks to what we try to do with all of our stories. It's great. You're doing amazing work. We're, we're so proud to have you here. We're so Thank excited you. to continue to see where you take the series and, the, and your own vision of, of how 
how to bring people's stories to life. So congratulations Thank on everything you. you're doing. You. Tell everyone where they can obviously subscribe on their uh, podcast feed, but the website is Radio Diaries. Yeah, the website is radiodiaries.org, and you can find you know the Radio Diaries podcast um, there at, the, at radiotopia.fm, where all the Radiotopia shows are. And, and you can uh, email us if you have any questions or want more information. Yeah. Thank you, Joe. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Work by Work on Air, a series of live conversations and performances exploring creativity and storytelling. These events are produced by Work by Work, a creative agency based in Brooklyn, New York, dedicated to collaboration and the idea of celebrating the work we all do. To learn more, visit workxwork.com and wxwonair.com. Thanks for listening. Wait!